Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 74. Glad to have you back on the program. I'm glad to be here. Before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone that you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, go on out to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, give me an email address and get a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders in American History. The audiobook is read by yours truly, so go on out there and check that out. Uh, also, spread the word around social media. If you like this podcast, please share it uh, with your friends and family. It's the only way we're going to grow it organically, so uh, I'd appreciate your help in doing that. If you did subscribe to Learn True History during the deal that we had uh, a couple of weeks ago, I will start sending out those books within the next few days, uh, so be looking for those. Um, if you did also, I also want to remind you, if you did subscribe at LearnTrueHistory.com under my deal and you did not send me an email saying, I want my book personalized, we'll make sure you do that uh, so I can get it to you that way. So. Um, do that and get a book. In fact, that book is the topic of my podcast today, one of the chapters in that book. And so um, I'm not going to give you everything in the chapter because I want you to go out there and get the book um, and uh, enjoy it that way. But I am going to talk about one of the people in the book, and I've done this before on the podcast a couple of different times. I talked about the Byards of Delaware and also the Lindberghs of Minnesota. But I'm going to discuss... Uh, a, a real forgotten person in uh, the late 19th century. Now, Russell Kirk mentioned him in The Conservative Mind. His name is E.L. Godkin, and he's one of these guys in the late 19th century that no one really knows anything about. But when you look at what he said about various topics in that period of time, some of the issues that were going on in the late 19th century, he becomes a really interesting figure. Um, so, you could say that maybe he's not forgotten because Russell Kirk talked about him, but I think that that's probably one of the chapters that is the weakest in that particular book because um, it's the chapter that he covers on the late 19th century, and he says, you know, conservatism is frustrated in that time period. I think that uh, Kirk didn't look deep enough, and he did focus on Godwin, but he ignored the South in that period, and there's a reason why. He said, well, look, the South was too concerned about uh, rebuilding itself. But there were a lot of interesting Southerners in that period who were saying, uh, you know, conserv quote-unquote conservative things. And he believes that conservatism in the late 19th century was more or less um, this kind of classical liberalism uh, that had taken over the United States. And in some ways, he's right about that. Uh, but when you look at Godkin and you look at modern issues and you look at, uh, for example, modern libertarianism, uh, Godkin fits very nicely within that within that uh, perspective. And so that's why I wrote a little chapter about him. And I thought that he was he was so prescient and um, 
uh, interesting that I used a tremendous number of block quotes in that chapter. And so looking back on it, I probably should have paraphrased those quotes a little better. Uh, but um, one of the reasons, you know, that, that when I wrote that chapter, the, the deadline was was coming on me pretty quickly, and we had to get another chapter in the book. And so I wrote it within, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, half a day. And uh, so it was uh, one that was kind of put together at the last minute. But I think the block quotes are nice because they do outline what E.L. Godkin was and what he thought about various things. And so oftentimes when I talk about the late 19th century when I am uh, lecturing, I mention the late 19th century really is the modern age. A lot of the issues going on in the late 19th century are issues that we grapple with today and uh, we talk about today. So, for example, foreign policy was uh, at the top of the list when it comes to issues in the late 19th century that are still current events, and that that was American imperialism. You had the Spanish-American War. Uh, You had the expansion after Teddy Roosevelt and the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine and uh, the uh, push into Latin America. Um, So you have this this real juice going forward to get Americans out there and uh, expanding throughout the world. Um, You've also got issues like uh, currency, inflation, hard money. This is an issue we wrestle with now. Uh, How do we deal with a runaway uh, central banking system uh, printing all kinds of money? We don't even know how much money is printed anymore. Uh, We've got a bubble being created by the U.S. government. All these things were happening in the late 19th century as well, and in fact, Godkin was a member of, I think, one of the more important uh, splinter parties in American history, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, You've got issues of, you know, how do we deal with demagoguery and democracy? Uh, These things were so important in the 19th century. You had the massive expansion of the suffrage uh, in uh, in the 19th century. Women were given the ability to vote in every state. Uh, You had freedmen. Uh, with the ability to vote in every state. So uh, you had that issue. What what should we do about trying to control who can and who can't vote? Uh, and this is something that people have talked about in the modern age as well. Who, I mean, should we just have universal suffrage or not? And what is the argument against it? And I think that we do ourselves a disservice in, uh, in America today by simply just having a knee-jerk uh, reaction to saying, well, should we talk about restricting the suffrage. And, oh, no, you can't do that. That's so un-American. That's so undemocratic. Well, uh, there were some interesting arguments made against universal suffrage, and Godkin was making some of those arguments. And, of course, his background also contributed to the, uh, the reason why we should pay attention to Godkin. He wasn't some, uh, you know, pro-Southern uh, ideologue or, you know, some guy that was out there uh, who everyone would say, well, that guy's just a racist or that guy's, you know, he, he's, Godkin was from the North. Godkin supported the war. Godkin was a firm believer in the Union cause and also he loved Abraham Lincoln. Um, so Godkin is in so many ways one of these guys that you could say, well, uh, if you're making these arguments, well, here's a guy that, I mean, everyone should like in that way. I mean, he was, he thought John Brown was a hero. He was, a, he was an abolitionist, but he's making arguments that are extremely nuanced, and they're interesting for the um, nothing more than just the uh, intellectual process behind them. He also founded a magazine, uh, The Nation, which is still currently being published. So uh, Godkin was a really interesting guy, a real thoughtful person, uh, and I think for that reason alone, we should pay more attention to E.L. Godkin. So 
One of the things that I liked about Godkin, and it's one of the first block quotes that I that I provide, is um, his statements on patriotism. So we've got an issue, and this this goes to the heart of foreign policy and some of the things we talk about in America today. Uh, what is it? What does it mean to be a patriotic American? If you listen to Sean Hannity, for example, and uh, people will come. He doesn't do it as much anymore, but for a while there, uh, in in the um, in the last decade, as people came on to his show, he would say things like, "Well, you're a great American," and of course, the uh, the people would come on, "Well, you're a great American, Sean Hannity." Well, what the heck does that mean? What is a great American? Uh, and and what is this concept of patriotism? What is a real American patriot? Well, Godkin had something to say about that. And in fact, he was critical of people who said that patriotism was the unquestioned loyalty to the American government. He said, that's not really patriotism. That's stupidity. Uh, and he pointed out that patri- real patriotism was the ability to question the government. Now, this might sound like a bunch of you know, 1960s uh, you know, peace, love uh, kind of stuff, because in the 60s, you know, that was, well, you got to question the government. you got to question authority. That's not what Godkin's point was. His point was that you know, when, you have, when you have a government that does things that are illegal or immoral, you should be questioning that government. You shouldn't just support it because it's the government. If the immoral act is uh, going out and bombing somebody, well, you should question that immoral act. If the immoral act is uh, inflating, the curr- inflating the currency to a point where it's worthless, you should question that immoral act. If the immoral act was uh, violating the Constitution, then you should question that immoral act. And that really is patriotism, because you're holding the elected officials accountable for their actions. And this fits nicely with the, with the think locally, act locally idea as well, because questioning that, that government is very difficult when you run into a situation when your representative ratio is 735,000 to 1. It's much easier to question that authority when your representative ratio is 1,000 to 1, as it is in some states, or easily at your uh, you know city government at times. I think city governments... Uh, can also be out of whack uh, when it comes to that representative ratio. You know, you could have a city council in a very large city of only maybe five people. Uh, so that needs to be uh, changed. But um, still, you might know your city, uh, your city uh, councilman uh, rather than your uh, member of the U.S. House of Representatives. It'd be easier. Um, so it's interesting what Godkin was saying about patriotism. He also had a lot of things to say about demagogues, and he was concerned about professional politicians. And he's writing these things in the late 19th and early 20th century when we hadn't gotten to the point yet where we've had, you know, we had organized parties, of course, in the late 19th century, and we had political machines. And he was very, very concerned about the effect these machines would have on modern politics. But now we have a class of people who are not the best people in society often. I mean, why do we pick the politicians we pick? Because they say they want to run for office. Uh, there's There's no vetting. Uh, so it's like, oh, yeah, Joe Smith wants to run for office, so I guess we'll, we'll think about voting for Joe Smith. But it used to be, when you look at the founding generation, and that's what Godkin was saying, my gosh, we've gone from people like um, you know, Washington and, and Jefferson and Adams even, and uh, these individuals who were, uh, who were great men because of who they were, and that's why they were selected for political office. We've gone to just a bunch of career politicians. The only thing they have is the ability to work through the parties. And we've got party bosses picking these people. And so where is the real statesman in that group? 
that didn't exist to Godkin. I mean, we had gotten to the point in the late 19th century where we didn't have statesmen anymore. Uh, they were just, uh, you know, they were gone, gone with American history. Now, Godkin also um, it was not born in the United States. He was actually born in Ireland in the 1830s, and he came over to the United States, uh, and he was a newspaper correspondent. He, um, he actually, um, in the 1850s, covered the Crimean War for the London Daily News, uh, and he arrived in America in 1856. He, he was actually offered a, a job to be an editor of an Ireland newspaper and turned that down. Uh, and he traveled throughout the United States. He actually spent a lot of time in the South, uh, and he didn't really care for the South. He thought it was undemocratic. He thought it wasn't really, uh, you know, the model of America. And in that way, um, he fit with, you know, this northern attitude toward the South, at least leading up to the war. During the war, he had much nicer things to say about the South, particularly people like uh, John C. Calhoun and, and Stonewall Jackson. In fact, when Stonewall Jackson was killed, uh, he really thought that America had lost a truly great American not just a great Southerner. And I think that's interesting. Here's a guy that um, had uh, you know, said very positive things, as I said, about John Brown. He was an abolitionist. Uh, but he recognized in Stonewall Jackson a man that America had produced. And he considered Virginia to be America. He considered Virginia to be a, a truly American place. Same thing with South Carolina and John C. Calhoun. He considered Calhoun to be a real statesman. And so uh, try doing that today. If there was an American politician who stood up and made a speech, go to the Congress, or you take somebody that's uh, you know a prominent political, quote-unquote, thinker in the mainstream, and they were to say, you know who's really a great American? I think Stonewall Jackson was really a great American. Or you know who's really a great American? John C. Calhoun is really a great American. And of course, I've done a podcast on Calhoun, and I think he really was a great American. But I'm not, you know, I don't have a mainstream, uh, you know, podcast or a radio program. I'm not a mainstream political thinker. Uh, but if you were to say these things, you are going to be run out of town on a rail. Uh, because these guys, I mean, you just can't say that. They're, they're Southerners, and uh, you know, one guy was fighting for the South. The other guy is considered to be uh, the quote-unquote defender of slavery. And, uh, but Calhoun's political philosophy was deeper than that. And Jackson uh, was, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't really pro-slavery at all. Uh, he was fighting for his home state. And uh, he was a pious man. A uh, very upright man, uh, a man that you could consider to be a truly great individual, regardless of what section he was fighting for or where he was from. But Virginia did produce Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Uh, he was a byproduct of his community and his people. And uh, when you look at Virginia after the war, there were still great statesmen coming out of Virginia. And I think, again, that's where Russell Kirk you know, should have focused on Virginia a little more carefully. But he, he thought that Virginia was just defending the South and not really they, they weren't really contributing to the national conversation. Uh, I think they were. But um, here you have a guy that says, you know, Jackson is a great American. John C. Calhoun is a great American. At the end of his life, uh, when Godkin was writing, he, he lamented that uh, we had no more great statesmen like Calhoun or like Daniel Webster. Um, or like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he, he loved Abraham Lincoln. Now, I would, I would uh, question his inclusion of Abraham Lincoln as a great statesman, but he definitely thought Webster and Calhoun were great statesmen. I think uh, if you look at the record 
um, Calhoun was a much greater statesman than Webster. And I've also done a podcast on Daniel Webster, and you can get my thoughts on Webster. Um, but he did, he was critical of American politicians who he thought were little more than demagogues. Um, he was critical of uh, New York City in the 1850s, which he called, you know, a den of uh, corruption, graft, waste, and laziness. Um, he, he didn't like Stephen Douglas of Illinois, for example. He thought Stephen Douglas of Illinois was a uh, little more than uh, a model demagogue. That's what he called him. Uh, and he didn't like utopians like George Ripley. Now, this is funny. Uh, anyone that studies 19th century America will come across the utopians. And we have to understand a few things about utopianism. It's still very popular. And you find utopianism in ideologues. Utopianism is the belief that America will be perfect if we just conform to your view of what America is, what America should be. And so when you look at utopians, you find them in a couple of different places. You find them on the far left because they have a vision of America that uh, you know, is either socialist or this egalitarian America where uh, you know, everyone sits around the campfire and holds hands and sings Kumbaya. Or you find them on the far right, which I would argue a lot of these people who are considered on the far right aren't really on the right. Uh, but you find them in the alt-right, right? And these, these people are the, uh, some of them are the individuals who um, uh, have this vision of America that fits, again, within their, their mind and, and what that is. I mean, uh, I often, you know, when, when people call the Nazis uh, right-wingers, they're ignoring the point that these people were actually socialists and they're identitarian uh, politicians. And that's, that's utopianism. That's utopian fallacy. That somehow if you just did this, this, and this, we'd have a perfect political society. What you find is that there isn't really ever any perfect political society. The only political society that works long term is a decentralized political society because then you allow the smaller units which you get down to the communities to decide among themselves what kind of political society they want. So in that particular case, maybe on a small scale, you could have a much more, quote-unquote, utopian political community. But when you start expanding that out to a larger and larger scale, it becomes impossible because the communists figured this out. In order to make something like that work, you have to kill people. And that's, I mean, that's the byproduct. And the Nazis figured this out. Uh, you know, the, the communists figured this out. Well, in order to get our perfect, uh, you know, communist uh, society, Stalin decided to purge, uh, you know, over 8 million people and then kill uh, millions of others. So uh, you, you have to do that to get these systems to work. Um, Hitler, to have his perfect society, involved wiping out vast, involved genocide. Uh, so, well, um, that's, that's what you have to have if you want utopian fallacies to work. Uh, and maybe on a small scale, you could just say, well, look, in our community, in our 2,000 people, this is the kind of thing we want to have. And if you don't like it, you don't have to live here. Just go live somewhere else in your own little utopian community. And what's wrong with that? Now, Godkin would be, would be, was concerned and critical of utopianism in general, even on a small scale, because you had in the 19th century uh, these utopian communities set up all over the place, but principally in what they called the burnt-over district which was in New York uh, and then also in Massachusetts. The, 
the North was, uh, you know, very much behind some of this stuff. And one of them was a place in Roxbury, Massachusetts called Brook Farm. And it was founded by a guy named George Ripley. Uh, and George Ripley uh, was a literary critic. But Godkin said this guy wasn't really a critic. The reason that everyone liked George Ripley uh, was because he never really was critical of anybody. Uh, he was a critic that was nice to everyone. That's not really being a critic. Um, and uh, he said that because Ripley never really criticized everyone, anyone, he was the idol, quote, the idol of all struggling authors and artists. Uh, that he was a man of wide cultivation and learning, there is no question, and would have been abundantly able to play the part of a real critic, but for the fact that his heart was too much for his brains. Now, this is actually very interesting because he's, he's hinting at why Brook Farm didn't work. It was a utopian farm. The idea was to have these people come out and have as much leisure as possible, but uh, you know, do very little work. The problem was in these communist experiments like that is that everyone had leisure and no one worked. And eventually the community fell apart. You know, Nathaniel Hawthorne spent time there and was very critical of Brook Farm. So George Ripley um, was uh, a guy that Godkin thought was a disaster. Uh, now, Godkin was a Republican partisan, um, but he was objective. And as I said, he, he admired people like Stonewall Jackson. Um, and he eventually thought that Southern society had something to offer. Um, but this, this independent streak was very important in his thought process. It would have been easy in the 19th century after the war was over to simply become a Republican partisan and be pro-Republican no matter what. But Godkin saw things in the Republican Party that, he, that concerned him. This headlong rush into empire. This uh, idea of free silver eventually. He thought that uh, the Republican Party was uh, distorting its original charge. Um, and then he thought the Republican Party moved to the left too much. And so uh, I think that when you think of you know, um, important American thinkers, just a lot of thinking in that sentence, when you, when you discuss important American thinkers, the independence of a thinker is very important. So he was a Republican Party partisan for some of his career, but then he became much more of a thinker, an independent thinker. And that's why I wanted to include him in the book, uh, because he was a person who would not just toe the party line. And you find that. You have a few of these people in the Congress today, people like Rand Paul or Thomas Massey or Justin Amash. These are people that don't toe the party line. And even when, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, they're saying the wrong things, of course, I will be critical of people that uh, I think are, um, you know, doing the wrong things. Now, this is what made Donald Trump at least attractive to people for a time because it didn't appear that he was towing the party line. He was, uh, you know, someone who was independent. And that's really what you want. You don't want the person uh, for office who is just going to be a party man or a party woman. You want someone who is independent, an independent thinker. And we have very few of those. <clears throat> That's a statesman. That's a statesman. 
Um, now, Godkin was also, a couple other things that I think are important about Godkin. He was uh, someone who believed in sound money, and he joined the National Democratic Party in 1896. So if you don't know anything about the National Democra- Democratic Party, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's one of the most important splinter parties in American history. Now, it didn't really receive, mu- receive much in the way of votes, uh, but in 1896, and I have talked about the 1896 election in this podcast, uh, in 1896, you had the Democrats nominate William Jennings Bryan as their uh, candidate, and the Republicans William McKinley. Now, Godkin could have supported McKinley, who was a Republican, but he didn't. He went to the National Democratic Party because he saw in the National Democratic Party the true principles of American government. More importantly, he saw the true principles of sound money. Godkin was very critical of inflation, and more importantly, free silver. And if you look at this NDP, this National Democratic Party, first of all, they nominated a Union veteran for president, John Palmer, uh, and a Confederate veteran for vice president, Simon Bolivar Buckner. And so it was like this north-south ticket. It was a reconciliation ticket in that way. Uh, They were moving beyond the war. And I think that fits Godkin's personality as well. Here's a guy that supported the war, but he believed people like Stonewall Jackson were great Americans, and he thought the South was being fearfully punished by Reconstruction. He thought that there were some problems there, and he was interested in reconciliation. Let's bring the South back. I mean, they're, they're in the Union. Let's treat them that way. Let's not treat them like some alien section or some conquered province. Uh, let's be kind to the South. And so he liked that particular idea of a reconciliation ticket. Um, and he thought that... Um, that the 1896 NDP uh, was uh, important because it had its basis, this belief in hard money. Uh, And he said that uh, he was critical of the Congress for distorting this power to coin money. He believed that that power to coin money meant they could only coin, coin money, not print money, not print dollars, paper money. And he was also critical of silver because it, it flooded the economy with too much money, too much currency. And that, of course, as the NDP said, would uh, make it to where working men did not receive 100 cents for every 100 cents worth of work. That's an interesting phrase. Working people should receive 100 cents for every 100 cents worth of work. We don't really get that. We don't get 100 cents for every 100 cents worth of work. We get an inflated dollar that within... A year is worth less than what you had the year before. And when you have that situation, the best thing to do is not save money, but spend money because you get more for your money now than you would a year from now because you can't even invest it enough and make enough return most of the time to, to keep pace with inflation, which is much higher than what the government tells you it is. Now, of course, today gas prices being lower has kept uh, some of that money in your pocket. Uh, but when gas was you know, much higher uh, and always fluctuating, and of course gas always, gasoline always does that and goes up, you didn't get your money out of your money. Godkin was also very critical of protective tariffs, which he's just considered to be a corporate welfare system. Uh, and so in that way, you know, he is uh, an interesting figure, uh, very much uh, along the lines of you know, people like Grover Cleveland. And of course, 
you know, when you look at the NDP, they supported Cleveland. They were Cleveland Democrats. Uh, he also was uh, critical of American imperialism. He thought that uh, the the uh, press was to blame for this headlong rush into war uh, with uh, with Spain, and um, he was, uh, you know, he compared this with Rome, and so he was a classical individual as well, um, and he said, you know, quote. These hundreds of thousands write to their congressmen clamoring for war as the Romans used to clamor for essentially bread and games. And as the timid and quiet are generally attending only too closely to their business, the congressman concludes that if he, too, does not shout for war, he will lose his seat. Our cheap press today speaks in tones never before heard out of Paris. Paris, now this is interesting, he brings up Paris. It urges upon ignorant people's schemes more savage, disregard of either policy or justice or experience more complete than the modern world has witnessed since the French Revolution. Now, he's writing this in 1898. And it's interesting that he compares American politics in 1898 with the French Revolution. Now, one of these days I'm going to do a podcast, and I have to, I've alluded to this, you know, the, the French Revolution in the long durée. Uh, there was a, an interesting book written in uh, the last 20 years entitled The Shield of Achilles, and it talks about this, um, the, the wars in, long, in the long view, World War I and World War II, and essentially says you know, that um, that was the culmination. He goes back a little before World War I, but he brings it out even further than World War II into the Cold War, and he says all of that was just one great big war. It was parliamentary democracy against totalitarianism. I think, though, you could take that back to the French Revolution. And Godkin is doing that. He's pointing this out. He's saying, you know what? This, this imperialism, this is the French Revolution. So here is a guy who is reacting to the French Revolution in, in a very negative way. Um, and he thought that the war was going to be a disaster for the United States once it was over because we would just be involved in this American empire. He also made, said some interesting things uh, about... Uh, as I said, um, the franchise and suffrage. And he said, you know, um, we shouldn't extend the, fr- the, the franchise to women because that will double the population, the voting population. We already have too many demagogues. And if you double the population, it's going to be even worse. And when you add in freedmen now who can vote, that's, that's adding more people to, to the voting population. So he was interested in restricting the franchise to only people who deserved it. And how did he decide who deserved it? It wasn't based on race or, uh, or um, sex. It was based on who could pass a civics test. Now, this is an interesting position because some people have brought this up. Well, maybe we should have a civics test to see who could vote. Uh, someone who could pass a test uh, of basic government. Um, now, of course, who's going to design this test today and what's, what's going to be in the test? But, I mean, if you look at most Americans, they couldn't even pass a U.S. citizenship test, the naturalization test that uh, people have to take when they become a U.S. citizen. So we have a situation in America where most people don't even know their history or civics or government. They don't know any of that. And yet they still go out and vote, and they're easily persuaded. This is what happens when you remove the idea of federalism and civics from American uh, government and, and, and classes. People don't even get this anymore, and they're just persuaded by anything. Well, this is right because we say it's right. I mean, it's it's emotion. In fact, uh, there was a um, 
There's a great book, a book of uh, on philosophy, written by a man named Aldisir McIntyre. I'm sorry, Alasdair McIntyre, excuse me, who wrote a book in 1981 entitled After Virtue. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book because essentially it's a defense of localism. Uh, but he talks about this emotivism that had become so important in American politics. Everything is emotional now. Well, I feel this way, for example. And maybe I'll do a podcast on that at some point. But it's, it's the point that, you know, Godkin is saying um, if we don't have, if we have some type of test, we can avoid this type of demagoguery. Well, the feeling becomes more important than the actual ideas. And so Godkin was interested in restricting the suffrage for that reason as well. Uh, and he, he, he criticized rat, what he called radical Democrats. Um, and he said that the highest allegiance to man uh, is due to liberty and civilization, or rather civilization and liberty. The possession of the suffrage by anybody is but a means to these ends. If the majority of the United States were to vote for the establishment of a despotism or a community of goods, I should feel as much bound to resist them in sword in hand as I would a foreign invader. Um, and so um, it, it's interesting that he's saying, you know, the problem that we have with universal suffrage is that it leads to these kind of problems, uh, these kind of situations where people uh, just simply emote and uh, they, they don't understand what they're doing. So uh, Godkin, uh, if you, when you get the book, if you did uh, subscribe at Learn True History under the deal that Tom Woods had, and of course I was running as well, and you get that chapter of Godkin, read those long block quotes because they're so important for understanding who Godkin was and his critique of American society. It's, it's just it's really, really good. And um, he's kind of one, he's forgotten philosopher, political philosopher. Uh, there's also a great chapter in there on William Graham Sumner, who's more famous than Godkin. But Godkin needs to be uh, rescued from oblivion because he really was an important thinker in the late 19th century. And there were these individuals at that time period who were so, uh, so, they were such visionaries for what America was going to become should the policies that were being pursued uh, continue. And Godkin wondered if he fell asleep and, and, and woke up 50 years later what things would be like. Um, I think he would have been shocked, uh, even in his own time. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.